Welcome and good afternoon. Um, I'm Steve Morrison, CSIS, and I'm thrilled to be here this afternoon with our guest of honor, Lael Brainerd, who will be talking about the future of foreign aid and where we move from here. Um, before we begin, I'd like to um, draw your attention to some events that are related to this. There's another Smart Power talk tomorrow morning, which is focused on health, global health. Andrew Kohut from Pew and Drew Altman from the Kaiser Family Foundation joined together to do a 47-country a, a survey, which had a significant panel looking at attitudes in those 47 countries on health, domestically, <coughs> as well as the, the, the views of external donors, including the United States. And they'll be coming and presenting here tomorrow morning 10 a.m. So please join us if you can. Uh, also, tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. in Rayburn, room 2456, we'll be uh, rolling out a um, task force report. This is a CSIS task force on non-traditional security assistance, uh, integrating 21st century development security assistance, which Kathleen Hicks from ISP, from the International Security Programs here, and I directed uh, the co-chairs of Congressman Robert Andrews and Mark Kirk, and um, a group of 14 uh, prominent task force members drawn from the, the development, diplomacy, and uh, security realms. Um, this is directly relevant, really, to the, to the issues that are before us um, today. Um, this is a big week and been a big season this year on, on foreign assistance. Um, just on Monday, Lael uh, presided in the rollout of the Help Commission report at Brookings, which many of you may have had a chance to, to attend, a major important piece of work uh, that has come forward. Uh, this speaker series here is part of the Smart Power Commission work, and the Smart Power Commission development assistance was one of the five priority areas there. And there's a lot of overlap and thematic consistency between the Health Commission and the Smart Power Commission and this, this uh, task force that's rolling out tomorrow. Um, certainly a lot of uh, attention to the need for elevating the priority to development assistance, for re-examining the structures by which assistance is being delivered by trying to create a balance, a better balance, and a more sustainable balance between security development, diplomacy, and related um, areas, trying to really strengthen the, the constituencies within our own society and political system that should be active around supporting these, these dimensions. Um, we had also recently Secretary Gates' speech at Kansas State University two weeks back, a remarkable speech, uh, calling for um, the Secretary of Defense calling for a renewed focus upon building civilian capacities and reinvesting in a much higher level. Uh, Lael uh, contributed directly to the Smart Power Commission, and, and we're very grateful for the role that you played in briefing commissioners. You'll see uh, her fingerprints in some of that development session, section, particularly the sort of the, the essential need for a cabinet-level voice, which was one of your strongly uh, articulated points, um, as I recall. Um, one of the outstanding questions that all of this in renewed attention to foreign assistance and poverty sort of begs is, okay, 
who's going to do what, when on all of this, and how is it going to be carried forward in the future? And are, if we're at this moment in which these issues have suddenly become, for a variety of reasons, much more important to us, and people across the aisle uh, from various walks are suddenly will, willing to re-engage, is that going to really create an opening for major change in the aftermath of this electoral cycle? And I think that's something that Lael's going to spend a lot of time uh, thinking about and talking about um, this, this afternoon. Uh, Lael is the Vice President and Director of the Brookings Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution and holds the Bernard Schwartz Chair in International Economics. In the Clinton administration, she served as the Deputy National Economic Advisor and Chair of the Deputy's uh, Secretary's Committee on International Economics. She holds a Master's and PhD in Economics from Harvard University um, and uh, has been a major voice, not just on foreign, on foreign aid, foreign aid being a complicated, terribly important subject in which many people are in the habit of coming to Lael for opinions and insights on this, but on a broad range of, of, of foreign relations uh, subjects. So Lael, we're, we're delighted that you're here today, and thank you so much for taking the time. Now? Okay, good. <laughs> All right, well, let me know if it's not working. Well, it's, it's, um, it's uh, delightful to be here, and, um, and let me just put in a plug for the rollout that Steve is doing tomorrow. I've had the pri privilege of participating in some of the sessions of, on the Task Force for Non-Traditional Security Assistance, and it's, I think, will probably uh, become the definitive uh, reference on those issues because it's such a growing and important part of our overall assistance landscape. and not as much is known about it as, as should be. And so um, I, I really encourage you to, to uh, go to the rollout and, and read the recommendations of that task force. Um, and thank you very much uh, to Steve uh, for hosting me here and uh, to Carola and Matt and others for the overall Smart Power uh, project. I think it's incredibly uh, timely and well-conceived, and this is a very, very important set of issues going forward. Um, I will reflect a bit on a task force uh, that, uh, that I ran uh, about a year and a half ago and that Steve participated very actively in, uh, which talks about the various pieces of the foreign assistance landscape and how they fit um, in our overall smart power um, toolkit, if you will, uh, but, but very much uh, be looking at prospects for change in the upcoming uh, change of presidents. So if you, if you look forward, I think all of us, uh, many of us, probably most of us in this room, believe that to regain international leadership, the next American president is going to have to present a new face to the world, to refashion the image we present to the world, and to refashion the way we try to influence uh, our global engagement. Um, the polling, uh, which many of you may be familiar with, shows that we have seen a very dramatic diminution in our reputational capital as a nation over the last seven years, and that it's very much rooted in American policies. It's rooted in our involvement in Iraq. It's rooted in uh, perceptions of U.S. unilateralism in particular. So it's not a sort of general, um, unanchored uh, perception, it is very much connected with policy choices that we are, have made or are perceived to have made. 
Um, there, the, the slippage is not just one where you look at polls and worry about it. It shows up in our ability to influence uh, international agreements and international events in our nation's interests. And so, you know, increasingly, if you look across the range of areas where we are trying to have influence, increasingly you find other nations bypassing the United States to conclude international treaties on big issues like climate, for instance, or regionally bypassing us to conclude important trade, economic, and monetary arrangements, whereas in the past we would have been seen as kind of the indispensable player. So this has costs. Um, I think the general assessment, and we uh, do see it uh, in the Gates speech, and we certainly see it in the Smart Power Report, is that we've been relying excessively on hard power assets, which are now stretched thin. And in this world, which is increasingly interconnected, where the threats that we face range from pandemics uh, to terrorism to entrenched poverty to climate change, I mean, they are really multiple there's a multiplicity of different kinds of threats and challenges, we need friends and allies. And so we need to deploy soft power more effectively with hard power to leverage hard power. And I think that's the sense in which the, the term smart power has generally uh, been used. Um, but as we think about what, what are the real tools in the toolkit, what are the degrees of freedom for the new American president, I'm just going to tick through some of the uh, instruments that are generally considered to be in the smart power or soft power, really, side of the toolkit. And, um, and unfortunately, my analysis is that, that they are somewhat constrained. So we start with trade. Um, trade is an area where um, the U.S. needs to engage. Uh, the world is changing incredibly rapidly. Uh, in terms of all types of non-military power, the U.S. is becoming not even a first among equals. We are increasingly um, a player with other powerful players. If you look at the balance of demographic power shifting very strongly uh, towards the developing world, if you look at the balance on resources power, when non-renewables, shifting very strongly uh, to other parts of the world, and if you look at economic power, breathtaking change in a very short period of time in terms of the integration of China and India into the global labor force, about a 70% expansion of that. Now that's uh, an, an era in which you would want um, visionary leadership to be able to lead the country to engage uh, in a smart, forward-looking way. But the reality is the domestic um, stance on, on the issue of trade is increasingly a defensive crouch. If you look at the polling, concerns and anxieties about whether we will benefit um, from trade, uh, have spread up the income ladder, across occupational categories, up the educational ladder, and across party lines. So although this is considered to be much more acute on the Democratic side, we can see it on the Republican side as well. So this is an area where the next American president should need to take bold leadership, but my political analysis would suggest it is not one of the easier early areas for action. Investment is sort of related to that. Again, this is a moment um, where that change in economic power is being seen visibly in the creation of these new entities, which actually there have been around for 50 years now, called sovereign wealth funds. Um, but between the accumulation of foreign exchange reserves in big exporting countries like China, 
between 1.2 and 1.4 trillion dollars of foreign exchange reserves um, and the accumulation of that kind of foreign exchange uh, assets in the petrodollar countries, we have a lot of liquidity sloshing around the international system that is either directly controlled by sovereign entities or is sovereign involved, if you will, like Gazprom's investments. And so at a time when the U.S. needs more inward investment than ever before because of our consumption patterns over the last little period of time, we are seeing much more political and public concern about these things. Now, my prediction is we will still be happy to take this money, as we saw in the case of Citigroup. But the political debate around it is, again, going to constrain the next American president from, for being out front you know, in, in putting forward uh, as a leader, a uh, set of international, if you will, a compact between the countries that are sending this money and the countries that are absorbing this money, um, which is easy to come up with. It's, uh, it's a very sensible exchange in terms of restraint on the one hand and transparency accountability on the other. But again, very difficult for the next American president, probably in the early days, to take leadership. Immigration, I think we all know how tough it is. This is an area, again, we live, um, we, are, uh, we have a huge 2,000-mile border with a country and then a set of countries where there's an enormous economic opportunity gap. The demographics, again, are very much in favor of a big global uh, labor market. And yet the po politics on this, and here they're slightly more skewed on the Republican side, but they spill over on the Democratic side as well, are not favorable to a big kind of generous, leadership stance on this. I think for all those things, it's going to take some time for Americans to regain confidence before they can engage and, and support a, a leadership stance abroad. And then finally, uh, before I talk about foreign assistance, I'll just mention climate change. I think there we are going to see a big shift uh, slowly over time in terms of how America presents itself in the international arena. The difficulty is that will play differently in different countries. So while it may be a plus uh, if we look more like Europe over the next few days, for, uh, years, for places like uh, Japan or Europe, that will not play well in places like India and China, where our quid pro quo will obviously be to insist that these countries take on obligations. And so the politics there are unlikely to um, give us a lot of chips on that international negotiating table as well. So, so foreign assistance, where does that play? I'd, I'd say ironically this is one of the areas, ironically because 10 years ago I don't think you could say this, but ironically that is one of the areas where I actually see a emerging bipartisan consensus that has been um, really quite breathtaking over the last seven or eight years. I think it, it comes from um, the confluence of two sets of forces. One is um, the, the increased public awareness of and support for uh, measures to um, uh, combat global pandemics, uh, HIV AIDS in particular, um, much more support for educational and health interventions around the world. And so there's a big uh, swelling of American public support on the global poverty front, coming together with a re-energized national security uh, concern that is connecting the dots between states that don't perform well and threats that pass across borders and in particular have come as far as the United States. Um, so I, I think there is potentially um, a chance, 
perhaps greater than at any time since the heyday of the Cold War, uh, to see a coming together in support of not just greater resources, uh, but much better uh, resources. The, the difficulty, I think, right now is that uh, we are not well configured uh, as a government to actually address those challenges very effectively. We have our foreign assistance spigots sprinkled across about 50 different um, offices, uh, which are not, um, you know, sort of coordinated consistently and don't report to each other. If you go through and you read the administrative language, the regulations, the laws, we have 50 objectives that these 50 offices are trying to serve. Uh, and while we've seen the near doubling of foreign assistance over a very short period of time, we've also seen an increased proliferation of presidential initiatives and ad hoc institutional arrangements that are intended to carry uh, these various missions out with these new spigots of money. With the result, I think almost everybody who's done research out in the field uh, or has looked at this internationally would say is that we punch way below our throw weight in terms of results per dollar expended. Um, ultimately, I think where we need to be is we need a unified framework um, that integrates that national security perspective that sees foreign assistance as a soft power tool with a developmental and humanitarian perspective that sees it as a tool that needs to be allocated against both need, poverty, but also against impact. Um, and it, it is very critical, I think, and this comes out very much in the work that we've done in the Smart Power Report, in the Health Commission Report, across the board, we've got to prioritize development. We have to truly give it equal standing vis-a-vis uh, -vis development, diplomacy, and defense, as was stated in the President's National Security Strategy of 2002. But most people don't, don't think that we've actually operationalized that notion of three uh, equally important stools. Um, there, I think there's a lot of potential for bipartisan support. As I said, one of the things that we, you know, when we examine things that have succeeded in the global poverty arena, like the campaign for debt relief, like the increase of funding for the Global Fund and the PEPFAR program, in general, those movements have um, not faced intense domestic political opposition. So when you look at farm trade, for instance, and you ask, well, why hasn't that campaign succeeded? The reason is because there are domestic, intense domestic political constituents that would lose from this kind of a deal. But if you look at making our foreign assistance resources more effective, more unified, more coherent, more operationally capable, there really is not a lot of reason for pessimism. It's mostly bureaucratic constraints and inside the beltway politics that we need to overcome. And so, What's the likelihood and what's needed between now and the election? Well, the progress on this front has been uh, kind of interesting and kind of coming from unusual quarters. I think part of the reason that we're seeing more attention to these issues right now and these issues getting joined is actually partly because the administration has, has put an attempt to coordinate some of these resources on the table, and there has been disappointment with it. And, and concern about it. And so partly, members of Congress have gotten interested in this agenda, partly because they've seen an attempt uh, to address it and they don't like it very much. And that's the state F process um, that most of you are familiar with. It was a, an attempt to do precisely this kind of thing. It was an attempt to put in one place uh, in the State Department 
a new bureau that would essentially try to coordinate from a policy and strategic point of view all these various assets. And the difficulty, I think, you know, looking back on it is this group tried to do a lot in a very short period of time. And the way you generally tend to do that is it tends to get very top-down. And that's what happened. It was very top-down. It was very Washington out. And the result of which is you had some really beautiful frameworks. You may all have seen them. Um, but they were unrealistic. And they were not in tune with the actual realities out in the field where a lot of the spending actually takes place. And as a result, you got a huge amount of pushback, not only from outside of government, but also from within government. And so that's why you're starting to see attention to these issues that otherwise simply weren't getting the attention. So for probably the wrong reasons, you're getting a good outcome, which is high-level attention to these issues. Um, and then there were some just basic, I think, tactical missteps. You know, there was a big um, proposal to shift some of the traditional development assistance money, for those of you who are familiar with all the budget accounts, to the economic support funds, which are seen as more strategic in nature, less developmental, uh, whether or not that's fair, but that is how they are perceived, and gives the Secretary of State more authority. So from Congress's point of view, less control. That was probably helped to prompt this relook. But for you know reasons that are good and bad, the reality is the authorizing committees, I think, are more engaged than they have been for a long time. And the appropriators have continued to be, I think, very, very engaged on this. Um, we um, looked, Larry Knowles in particular, was with Congressional Research Service for probably 20 years, looked in great detail at seven episodes of reform in the U.S. system. And the question we asked was essentially, what does it take to get genuine reform? And he found that in five cases, these reforms failed. And so the odds are against anything good or big happening, I think, is the is sober assessment. Um, but what it does tend to take is, A, presidential leadership, B, foundations on the Hill, some congressional members who are willing to be champions, who care, who are engaged. Um, it takes some public awareness and interest, and I think we have more of that now than probably at any previous uh, period. Um, and uh, it requires that everybody who's part of the process ultimately sign on to the same recommendation. Timing is very critical. Um, these big changes take place in the early years of a new administration, or, or to be more precise, in the early year of a new administration, before people know what you know, their little cabinet seats look like and are becoming protective of turf. And so there is a window, but it's an extremely short window, and it means the clock is ticking as we speak. Um, in terms of um, the, uh, the, the champions, um, I think the, the community of kind of experts and um, thinkers and high-level practitioners are engaging, and that's why this series of task force reports uh, is, is very important because it provides a, um, a repository of recommendations, and there's a lot of commonality across these task forces and commissions, even though they're coming from different perspectives and asking slightly different questions. And I, I can go through some of those points um, in a minute. But if you go through, it was, there was a commission on weak states. There was a task force on transforming foreign assistance for the 21st century, um, the Smart Power Commission, the Health Commission, uh, which was congressionally mandated, and now the task force on non-traditional security assistance. Am I forgetting anybody? There's, I mean, the, the fact that there is this much activity in a short period of time focusing on these issues, and across all of them, I would say, you do get this um, 
theme of elevating development, uh, giving it voice at the cabinet level. You do get a theme that we need operational capacity, and this comes through very strongly from the military side and then the gates. We are not operationally capable right now in a way that matches our missions and our aspirations. Um, we need to work much more with a very vibrant um, organizations outside of government, be they the private sector, uh, be they um, NGOs, faith-based organizations, uh, philanthropic organizations. We've got a tremendous asset, particularly in the U.S., outside of government, and we don't work so well with them. Um, and there's a variety of other things that we call them principles in our report. Um, we need coherence, not just within foreign assistance, but across policies, because increasingly, if you've got foreign assistance going in one direction, you've got trade policy going in another direction, you're going to fail on both fronts. And so agricultural trade policy is the most obvious area where you know we can do as much um, technical assistance as we want uh, on agricultural uh, seed varieties. Um, but if our market essentially uh, is not open, or we are uh, depressing the world price of cotton because of our subsidies, um, those two policies are going to be working um, at, at, at counter purposes, and we're going to fail as a government. And that's essentially what we do right now. So unless we have that coordinating mechanism to elevate development on those issues as well, we're going to fail. Similarly, in terms of the relationship between conflict prevention, post-conflict reconstruction, if our military side and our civilian side can't work well together because one is very capable, logistically ready, and the other isn't, we're going to fail as a government. So that cross-policy coherence and cross-operational uh, coherence is extremely important. Um, in terms of a few other principles that I'll just um, highlight, I, I won't be comprehensive here. Um, we keep talking about operational capabilities, um, but if you look at the last 10-year period um, and you look particularly at USAID, what you see is a consistent downward trend in terms of resourcing of that um, set of capabilities. And so the question mark is, you know, yes, we can put a lot of more money out there, but if we're not willing to actually staff against the missions um, and create that technical expertise, we are, again, going to undershoot our goals. Uh, if you look at um, staffing levels, they've declined by about a third over a period where, as I said, our foreign assistance has doubled. If you look at technical capacity, 55% of the professional staff are now generalists at a time that we need much more expertise on infrastructure, on agriculture, on health, on education, you name it. We need technical expertise. 3% of that workforce is now engineers, um, which is a huge diminution uh, since the heyday uh, back in the 1960s. And if you look at how much money um, this small agency is being asked to move, um, the uh, numbers are about $2 million per staff member, as Charlie Flickner will point out. Um, that, that is actually confined to a much smaller set of people who have the contracting and procurement skills. And so basically they're becoming the, what Carol uh, Lancaster likes to refer to as a wholesaler of wholesalers, which means that they are further and further and further removed from actually being able to gauge the results on the ground. There's no learning capacity. There's no serious kind of research capacity within that organization anymore, which is the counter of what we need if we want to learn. You know, ultimately uh, development is not 
uh, well understood. We need to continually be evaluating and reassessing and learning. There's no capacity to do that right now. So if you just look within this area of operational capabilities, we have talked a good game uh, over the last little time period. Um, and you know, we hear the Secretary of State cares deeply about this stuff. We hear people on the Hill. We hear people in the Defense Department. But you do not see any improvement in actual operational capability over that time period. Um, so let me just quickly um, wrap up so you can kind of uh, like to hear your thoughts and your reactions. Um, there's, there's probably also some structural implications of all of this. How do we best um, achieve those principles? And that's, I think, where there's a lot of debate right now. Um, and the good news, I would say, uh, is that there is debate, that this has not really gotten a lot of prominence uh, over a long period of time. There's a variety of models out there that people are looking at. Um, there's different ways to make the development function even more closely integrated into state. One would simply, um, you know, sort of continue along this line of having the, the coordinating uh, function sitting at state. Another alternative, which was ultimately recommended by a, a majority, but not all, of the HELP Commission members is to create what, what um, could be referred to as a super State Department that takes all of the civilian international affairs capabilities and puts them under the State Department. Um, a third option is to actually elevate development by creating a true cabinet agency for development that would sit side by side and be the operationally capable um, agency that would do the foreign assistance functions. So it would probably be called development, but would probably do humanitarian and post-conflict. Um, and then the, the, the final um, recommendation is, is, to, is to beef up uh, coordination at the White House. My own view is that there are really three options, that no matter what, you have to have a coordinating function at the White House, and that it's a symbiotic with those other functions. Depending on where you, where you end up on the structure, you have to have a supporting White House coordination mechanism that works well with it. Um, so those are the things on the table. Um, again, in order to use this window, Congress needs to be active now. They need to be laying the groundwork. They need to be, as Senator Luger's office has just done, doing research. They sent um, teams out to the field. They had some very interesting um, uh, feedback and results that they just published a report. I recommend it to you. Um, and uh, that's precisely the kind of process that was followed in Goldwater-Nichols. And then you have to have an incoming president that already has a view about this, preferably, and moves quickly on it, as President Kennedy did in 1961. In the earliest days in office, he had a view about what he wanted to do and quickly rolled out the Peace Corps, USAID, the Partnership uh, for Prosperity in the Americas. And so those are the kinds of requisites that we would need in order to see meaningful change on this front uh, in 2009. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Larry. Um, back when you were initiating and leading the effort at Brookings uh, in partnership with CSIS, but centered at Brookings on that generated the security by other means, which was really at at the forefront of getting this process of deliberation underway, you were pushing on several fronts. One was to get us to be thinking about the security side in a much more serious way. And that was part of what tri tr triggered in our minds the, the follow-on work. But you were really pushing hard on we need to understand and look much more carefully at that domain 
and put it into a broader picture that brought the development and other diplomatic considerations into that. Can you say a little bit more about the Department of Defense side of this yeah. and as to what you see as the potential there, particularly when you've got the great expansion of DOD's role and you've got a Secretary of Defense that's making, who's making statements that are dramatic in their implications. Well, I think the, the numbers um, that uh, probably are the easiest numbers to get our hands around is that if you just look at our um, ODA, our official development assistance, about a fifth of that is now um, implemented by DOD. So that's a lot. It's a big number. And that is up from a very small number just a very few years ago. So there has been a dramatic shift over to the Department of Defense. I think where what's unclear is how much of this does the Department of Defense really want to do and how much do they feel they have to do by default um, because they are looking to other parts of the government and not seeing the, the capability that they are accustomed to. I mean, the, the, the overall uniformed services are operationally capable. That's what they're all about. And when they look over um, to their kind of civilian counterpart agencies, I don't think they have a lot of comfort that there's a similar level of operational capability. Now, of course, it varies. So on humanitarian, I would say, you know, there really is a there there, and there's an established track record. But in some of the other areas, again, there's been um, some attrition, and there's some anemic parts of that uh, puzzle. Um, I think Steve's task force uh, probably puts more specific recommendations on the table, and I, I won't, uh, they're probably not out there yet, so I won't, I won't um, spill the, um, the, the secrets there, but um, I, I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think there's this hard and fast rule about how much money should be over here as opposed to there. Um, I think there are, um, there are some general guiding principles. A, I don't think America wants to, to, to have the primary face in a lot of poor countries be a uniform face necessarily, not because uh, we're not tremendously proud of our men and women in uniform, but because we want to have a very robust civilian engagement and we want to be sending a somewhat different message. And so that's one of the principles, I think, is uh, the second is that um, development and even reconstruction um, and a, a big chunk of humanitarian, these are things that, you know, people spend years and years learning a great deal about. And so you can't simply, you know, ask people to change their stripes overnight. And, and you want to be able to draw in that enormous knowledge and capacity that's on the civilian side, both in our private sector and, and in government. Um, question mark, I think, that people have always had is should there be a pot of money sitting somewhere, um, which makes it easier on the civilian side to gear up very quickly. Um, and this is just a perennial executive legislative battle. I don't think that's actually the nub of the issue, although I, you know, I'd be very comfortable, obviously, having been over on the executive side saying, sure, there should be a pot of money. That may not be achievable, but could there be authorities that are quickly activated? Can we fix the system by which that takes place? The same thing on the civilian response capacity, a sort of uh, national reserve, if you will, um, for civilian response. How much more um, can that be elaborated and made operational? I think the answer is probably a lot, if there were the resources and the will to do it. Um, so there are a variety of areas um, where the civilian side could be beefed up. Um, without this being a kind of a, a tussle uh, between the civilian and the military sides. You know, the, the picture that you paint is one of, you know, despite the polarization of opinion along party lines, 
in our own system, despite the the the, the intensifying presidential and congressional uh, competitions, uh, that we've had these multiple streams of civil and informed and in-depth in-depth discussions around foreign aid that suggest, as you say, that there's an emerging bipartisan vision and consensus about the need to do better and do more and really to to move forward. And that holds out a certain promise that the intellectual capital that's being built up in this period can be tapped by whoever the victors are in Congress and, and, in, and in the White House in this next phase. You were one of the commissioners on our uh, on, on the CSIS task force on non-traditional security assistance, which for which we're very grateful. And you counseled very strongly in that in 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 in, the, in those deliberations that we needed to to keep a focus on what the real options are, to be realistic that certain things that are almost habitual in putting out as we need a wholesale rewriting of the Foreign Assistance Act, you sort of batted that back and said, "No, wait a second." Let's be. Let's focus upon what are the truly actionable priority steps. So, thinking ahead to the next White House, I mean, what were what would be, in your view, the three or four things that should be on the lead of that of that president who comes in and is asked, okay, he or she, what's it going to be? What are the three or four priority actions in the first year to be taken on foreign assistance? Well, I think. There's a long list of things that are very feasible um, that are perhaps not the top three priorities, but that could easily be done. You know, things like um, uh, improving uh, technical expertise, improving um, staffing levels, uh, improving uh, R&D, if you will, capabilities of the that uh, set of civilian operational entities. Uh, those are easy things to do, actually. It doesn't require much. What it requires is a certain amount of awareness, which I think mm -hmm. is, is largely absent right now, but is starting to filter through. Um, what is politically very tough uh, is getting the trade aid um, uh, combination right. And I, I, I think that's not going to happen anytime mm -hmm. soon, just having watched the farm bill. I think that is very tough. Um, question mark as to how tough it is to get a structural change. It's obviously very easy to get a, uh, a, a some kind of enhanced coordination mechanism at the White House, because that doesn't require legislation. The real question is the structural uh, piece of this puzzle. Uh, first of all, getting agreement around it, because you have different communities that are looking to different answers on that front. Um, and then getting a president to deploy some political capital. I actually think you can rank order how hard it is. I think the kind of super State Department option is incredibly hard, steps on a ton of turf of different mm -hmm. agencies, uh, and has so much of the kind of DHS um, baggage to it uh, that it is very, very heavy lift. And moreover, requires a degree of cultural change within the State Department um, that is, again, an enormous lift at a time when you're going to be asking the core mission of the State Department to, to work very hard and to stretch very, very thin. Um, I think the cabinet agency one, um, you know, a lot of people uh, say, God, we'd love to see that, but it's just too hard. In fact, we had a meeting of experts not too long ago where people sort of rank ordered. And then we stopped the discussion. We said, okay, now let's rank order 
without thinking about, you know, your priors as to whether this is politically feasible. And the number of people in the room that came to cabinet level first changed uh, inordinately. And um, I think historically it's not actually that hard. I mean, you think about cases like USTR or HEW or uh, USAID or DFIT. Um, it's not that hard. It's just a question of whether you can get that prior agreement. And that's the piece that I think is difficult because, again, you've got different communities pulling in different directions on that one. Um, but that one, I would say, is the, is the harder category um, relative uh, to some of the easy things, um, like changing the way you staff and reward um, at, at a place like USAID. And do you think that within Congress there's an identifiable core of champions that you can that you can work with across the aisle in this? Period? Having spent a lot of time trying to um, trying to raise um, peak interest on this, and now finally seeing some real take up, there are not champions yet, uh, but there are. I think there is a. You don't need, by the mm -hmm. way, full committees. You need mm -hmm. seven, eight, maybe ten mm -hmm. powerful people in the right committees um, that that care about this. And I, I think we're beginning to see, I could count maybe, I would say four. Um, so we're halfway there um, in terms of seeing that level of mm -hmm. interest. Great. Why don't we open the floor for some comments and questions for Lyle? Uh, we have microphones. Uh, please just put your hand up and when, uh, when you make your intervention, please identify yourself over here and then up front. We'll take two or three and then come back to Lael. So, sir. Carl Aaron from Nathan Associates. Um, I was just going to ask how... Say your name you and title again, please. Carl Aaron from Nathan Associates. Thank you. I was going to ask, how, is, how do you feel that the administration here is doing compared to other uh, countries on foreign assistance and smart power, as they're calling it? So, for example, if you ranked the U.S. now on a scale of 1 to 10 and said 5 and rising, or if you mentioned DFID and the cabinet-level position there, and they've always done a lot of budgetary support and not particularly linked it with defense and such like, uh, you have Japan, and everyone's worried about China and how they're doing their overseas influence in Africa, for example. So some sort of view of how you saw that would be very Great. interesting. Thank you. Right here, ma'am. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Lorelai Kelly. I'm with the White House Project. We're doing a lot of 08 outreach around the country on this. The question I have is the civil-military relationship piece. I'm finding that you have to sort of do a, uh, a background around civics to be able to talk about, you know, who should have the power and who should be doing what. And what's worrisome is that, that a lot of people do equate um, achieving security with that's the military's job. And unfortunately, that fits in with how Congress likes to fund things, too. Um, what do you think is the most effective message? I know that you all have been doing work around the country on this that tries to break that relationship between the more you spend on defense, the more security you purchase. Because I think that's a real hindrance to the kind of, of vast grassroots movement that would be behind this if we can talk about this in a more balanced way. Thank you. Right here and then in the back. And then okay, go ahead, sir. Uh, Paul O'Brien, Oxfam. Um, Pardon me? Paul O'Brien is my name, and I'm with Oxfam. Um, question is, uh, obviously, the movement towards smart power is a real evolution in the discussion, but now that we are embracing the idea of development as a part of smart power, the next challenge is what does smart development look like? 
And my, what I've been sort of witnessing in the past few months is the, the notion in Washington is if we can get the enabling environment for smart development in place, we can get the right authority, we can get the right resources, we can get the right organizational structure, smart development will emerge. And my question is, am I, am I accurately re reading the debate, or is there a, a real discussion around what the principles of smart development in the field are actually like? Are they feeding back into the discussions around organizational structure, et cetera? Thank you. Let's take one more, sir. You had your hand up. And we'll come back to you later. I'm Josh Meekham. I'm a student at George Mason University. Uh, my question was, is you mentioned the Luger report, and uh, you also have a strong feelings about raising the level to a cabinet, the level of development to a cabinet level position. I would just like to hear your response to what uh, Senator Luger says in that report, which is the exact opposite view, is that he says that raising it to that level would actually be good. Um, all right, let me uh, let me see if I can do all of them. Um, those are hard questions. These are big questions. Um, so where would I rank the U.S.? Um, I mean, my sense is the EU. Let's put the EU at um, you know I don't know higher than they should be um, and doing pretty well. So eight and rising um, because I think they focused a lot on soft power and they have made that a central part of their kind of multilateral and bilateral and regional strategies, and they do it pretty well. Uh, the UK, uh, we did an in-depth assessment of DFID, and um, generally speaking, the view is that DFID has just moved UK into a different class of operations. They are punching well above their throw weight. Um, now, again, they have the underlying political consensus that has taken a while to develop here. Um, but that it, just in terms of, you know, I don't. I think you're asking me about perceptions and not actual effectiveness because we could go back through and grade differently if we wanted to ask about, you know, we can talk about budget support and where it's appropriate and where it's not appropriate, but I'm just going to talk about perceptions. So I'd say, you know, the UK, similar to the EU, is, is probably eight and, and, and rising. Um, you didn't ask me about this, but I'll tell you, China, um, you know, is probably four and rising rapidly. Um, and is doing better in Africa in many respects, although mixed, than we are um, for complicated reasons, even though I think we actually have uh, more historical knowledge there and a, a, a better approach um, informed by years of probably not so smart interaction. But the perception is not such. And, and the U.S. is probably, I don't know, six and falling. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, we're deploying more money than any other country on Earth. Uh, so, but it, it's not perceived that way, and we have the power of this unbelievable non-governmental sector. And again, you know, why can't we pull all those things together and turn that around? Um, Laura's question, um, just on this issue of um, you know security and development. Let me not quite answer your question, then I'll come back to your real question. First of all, I, I think there's there is a it's a very complicated discussion around security and development. And uh, what we tend to see is, from more of a security side, we, we now really believe, and this is you know, in the QDRs, it's in the NSSs, it's, you know, it's all over the place. We now truly believe that poverty is a, is a problem from a national security point of view. We can see some causality there. We've done a lot of research at Brookings talking about um, conflict and poverty and direct causal links that are now pretty evident in the research. 
The difficulty, I think, from a policy point of view is you may care about it because it's a security issue, but if you address it head-on as a security issue, you are much less likely to succeed. There is a development has a longer-term horizon. Um, it sometimes means um, not making the short-term political quid pro quos that you need for strategic reasons, but rather hewing to kind of a longer-term development path, telling Egypt no on, or Pakistan, no on certain projects, and saying you only get this money if we do other projects that we think actually are going to have long-term. Sometimes it means working around governments uh, or not working with governments. And so it's actually it's a very complicated, um, I think, translation from the rationale into what does that mean from policy. And the difficulty is I think we've conflated that security and development message at the policy level so that we actually think, well, the security agencies should be implementing too, and the, the State Department should have a ton of money um, to, to, you know, sort of developmental quote, quote, money to use for these short-term quid pro quos, which we need to do as well, but we need to be very clear about which pieces of money are being used for what purposes. And if we need a short-term quid pro quo from a government, it's very different if that government is autocratic, if that government is, you know, sort of diverting resources. Um, that is not long-term development strategy, so we need to be clear about that. Um, in terms of just the linkage between the 050 and the 150 account, I'm not one of those people that tends to say we're spending too much money on the military full stop and we should be spending more money. I, you know, I think those, those judgments need to be made separately. And, um, and this is not, you know, I, 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 I don't think we should just be, you know, trying to find ways to kind of invade the 050 account. I think we need to be very clear about our hard power assets. We think we need to be very clear about our soft power assets and make those things in a way that takes both into account, but I don't think it's a reallocation per se. Um, so to Paul's question, um, you know, we, um, we're a pretty eclectic organization. Bill Easterly sits in our midst, for instance. Is there a 100% um, consensus that we, aha, we know the answer uh, to smart development? No. It's going to be a continually evolving field. We've seen fads come and go. I don't think we should be um, we should fool ourselves to think that we can. And the other thing is, we shouldn't fool ourselves to think that we're too big a part of the equation. I mean, that you know, one of the one of the perennials I think that we've learned is that if there are is there domestic civil society, domestic uh, reformers in government, and they have a plan, we support that plan. We are much more likely to succeed than if we come in with a plan um, and try to superimpose it. Um, so that's that is one of the perennials. I think we also know that you want to tailor assistance um, to the level of capacity and government's accountability, transparency in country. And so, you know, an MCC-like model is not going to work uh, in a lot of countries. But that doesn't mean that you throw local ownership out the window when you go into more poorly governed environments. You simply add on more oversight. You work more with civil society and less with governments. There are ways of customizing. Uh, those answers, and I think we know a lot about, you know, sort of the um, transmissibility on the health and education uh, side. We know there, are, and, and agriculture. I think there's some more uh, challenges when you're trying to transmit on the productivity and the economic growth side. So I think we know a lot, but it's a continually evolving um, field, which is why I think risk taking is important, learning, evaluation is important, and that now we're of course going to pile climate on top of all of these challenges. <laughs> so we got a lot of learning to do there. Um, and the fourth one, um, you know, having spent 
um, some time with Senator Luger's staff and heard the senator on these issues. I don't think that piece of their recommendation is actually very strong. I think they are also opening a debate on what is the right, um, what is the right relationship between the, um, the operational capability, you know, call it a development agency or whatever you want to call it, and the diplomatic um, kind of chief agency. And they're re-examining um, the, the state F process that's been put in place. And, they're, they're very strong, I think, from the field on saying that at the end of the day, the development, the AIDs and the other development arms are the implementers. They have the field knowledge and we have to come up with a system whereby that knowledge filters through and affects priorities and spending in Washington. And, and again, they do say we have to elevate that, that voice. So I, I think it's a, it's a more nuanced, from my discussions with them, I think their proposal is more nuanced and I think they are also open to having that dialogue, which I, which I am also, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, absolutely committed to one solution here either. I think it's, it's very important to get the issues on the table and have a, a full discussion and come up with a conclusion and move to it. But that's, that's where I would be hard over. Thank you. You know, one of the themes that you see, you see it in the Smart Power Commission report, is a sort of hesitation about the constituency in the United States for foreign aid and a certain um, wariness. You know, we've done the cycles of reports on foreign aid go back 30 years and they get bundled around election cycles and and, um, and I think there's some folks who would look at this and say, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, let's not get too carried away. Uh, we've been through this before and the constituency remains a bit weak. Let's imagine if we enter a transition where our economy is in tough straits the costs of Iraq and Afghanistan are, you know, becoming uh, un untenable. You've got a new administration coming in and trying to sort of work its way forward. How much is it going to want to step out into this area? The counter argument, I think, might be that, in fact, there has been some dramatic changes within our society with respect to foreign aid, and that there is the outline of a new set of constituencies. I mean, when you look at Secretary Gates making a speech of this kind, it's representative of a shift of opinion within the security domain. When you look at the new advocacy groups, the One Campaign, Data, the new voices, the Jeff Sachs and others, uh, the debate that has gone forward there, you look at what happens in universities with respect to the interest in development, the interest in global health, there's a generational shift that has occurred. Um, the powerful new foundations that are out there, the Clinton Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates and other, the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, there is something, it, I think you could argue, that, that, that represents a new coalition. And I would add into that the religious conservative community, which was, uh, which was largely absent until this decade, really, on these matters, and is showing every sign of staying very much at the center of those discussions. Could you just talk a bit as a, as a sort of political view on our society and the coalitions that might form around this, de this debate? Um, I, I think partly, um, you know, having been in around these issues now for uh, a long time um, and, you know, having sort of been um, in government, out of government, I, I think I'm just becoming more pragmatic and opportunistic as I age. <laughs> and I sort of feel like you go for targets op opportunities. Uh, when they exist. I think trade was a much more open field 
in the 1990s, we were able to do things like AGOA um, that, you know, or they've just gotten tougher. This is not the era right now uh, for bold new moves um, on trade uh, because the political constraints are, that may shift again. Um, this seems like an era where the political forces have aligned in a completely different way on the global poverty front, as Steve was saying. And so, you know, I do think uh, there's a variety of underlying societal changes that mean, you know, it does provide this window. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, we, we did this big uh, conference last year and report where we talked about, you know, the global rock stars, you know, the mega philanthropists. I mean, this is, this area is hot, right? And, you know, that was just not true um, 15 years ago. It was a bureaucratic backwater, right? And now everybody wants to be part of the, you know, the big international confabs. And, you know, it's cool to be for global poverty, so that's good. Um, you know, Steve's um, analysis in Security by Other Means, he's got a great chapter on what enabled the big shift on PEPFAR and the Global Fund and talks a lot about the religious community and how it shifted on that and how that was an enormously important enabling factor to get the left and the right pieces of the political spectrum behind this. Um, the security piece of it, I think, is also an enabling factor, but it is, you know, there's a cautionary note there, as I said before. Just because we now have a security rationale doesn't mean we want to treat it as a security problem. And so it, there's a little bit more complexity there. Um, so I think, you know, if you look at humanitarian, Steve Hench's uh, analysis in, in the same um, book uh, says that something like um, the, the private contributions at times of humanitarian crises are, you know, much larger than the governmental ones. And so the U.S. is the most generous nation on earth at times of humanitarian crises, um, partly because of private generosity. And if you look at, um, it's not just the Bill Gateses and um, the Richard Bransons of the world. It's, it's people are getting on the internet and giving. It's great. And so, and people are giving of their time. We have this big project on volunteering. More and more Americans are spending, you know, their vacations um, or short periods of time or longer periods of time in any way they can working overseas on volunteering, which is another indication that we care, that we're engaged. And I think that there's support for our government uh, to be engaged. And, and the question is how long is that moment? And do budgetary exigencies that Steve was talking about, you know, really push back against it? I mean, my sense is a lot of people have looked at how much money we've spent on Iraq and Afghanistan and say, well, geez, if we can spend that much there, why can't we spend a little bit more on Africa uh, or Bangladesh? So, you know, I, I think we're at a moment. I don't know how long it'll last, but I think it, it is, it is, it's a window, and if we don't take advantage of it, it will shut. If you have time for two, maybe three sure. questions, we could do one more round and then come back. Sir, and then Jerry. Sir, in the middle. Uh, <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> Harry Inman. I'm a lawyer. I think one of the criticisms, I think everybody believes in foreign assistance, but one of the main criticisms has been the corruption on the other end. In other words, people have no assurance that the money that we're paying out ends in the pockets of those that really need it. Is there anything being done to protect that? Okay. And Jerry Hyman? We'll come back to you. Uh, at CSIS. Um, I don't think any of the commissions have talked very much about personnel issues. And it seems to me there's a, 
in the development area, there's two obvious personnel issues and perhaps others as well. I wondered if you have thoughts about them. The two obvious ones, in the career foreign service, for example, when you have two career families, the career foreign service is built around a single career officer and a trailing female spouse. And that's not that's not the way things are anymore. So you have problems of tandem couples, people who have children, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if, there's any, if you have any thought about that. The other is conflict areas. Uh, it's not just Iraq, but when the Secretary wanted, I mean, just had this huge incident at, at State uh, just a few weeks ago where the spokesman for the, uh, for the Foreign Service Union quote uh, stood up and said, uh, you know, their folks don't want to go to Iraq. They're not going to go to Iraq. That's not what they signed up for, notwithstanding the statement uh, that all of them signed that they're available for worldwide service. How do, it seems to me that the personnel issues, uh, quite apart from all these other things, resources of being available, you still have to have people who are prepared to go there. And the military simply assigns people. Uh, and people who sign up for the military assume that's what's going to happen to them. That's not the case on the civilian side. And it seems to me you have sort of, even in the developed areas, that you have these career problems with spouse, uh, family, et cetera, et cetera, and, on the, and it gets particularly acute in the conflict areas. And I wonder if you thought about any reforms on the personnel side. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, on this issue of corruption, yeah, if you look at the polling, um, what you'll see is a very consistent theme among the American people that they want to create capacity uh, in poor communities. They don't want to just do give handouts. Um, and that they're worried that when they do give handouts that all they're doing is lining the pockets of the rich and not uh, actually getting money to the poor people that need it the most. I think there's been tremendous progress on this front. Um, I look at all the great work that's been done at the World Bank of measuring these things and notwithstanding the kind of management tussles, I, you know, I think there's a complete change in culture that we see you know, throughout the development community, much greater awareness of the corruption issues. Probably at the end of the day, the most promising developments are on the initiatives that are addressing uh, civil society and in-country capacity to hold governments responsible and to create transparency that enables that. And so I think at the end of the day, when we're doing our giving, um, we should be building in mechanisms, not for, it's obviously critical to build in mechanisms of oversight back to Congress and our taxpayers. But over the longer term, what's more important is using our aid as a way of building oversight mechanisms in country so that as we're increasingly helping to build capacity, that they develop civil societies and governance mechanisms that enable citizens to hold their own governments accountable. That's really critical. And there's some really nice initiatives out in the private sector doing that on resource revenues, as you know. We've got a lot of work underway on civil society organizations um, and trying to help grow capacity at those civil society organizations, partly through national income accounting. We talked about budget support. Budget support is actually a way, if, you, if it's accompanied by um, the, the requisite um, in-country capacity on holding governments accountable for budgets, it's actually a way of building that kind of in-country capacity to hold governments accountable for resources, which I think is really important. On the latter set of questions on personnel issues, um, let's see. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I, I never say this, but the truth is I'm a product of these trailing spouses kind of families and know the problem very acutely. 
um, in terms of um, you know my own parents' experience in the Foreign Service. Um, and it is something that I think, you know, if we want um, a career track for Foreign Service officers, needs to be part of the personnel uh, system increasingly uh, and is very difficult um, for families. Um, the private sector um, deals with these issues all the time. There's great best practice out there. We can learn um, from the private sector, and, uh, and I don't think the military model is going to work very well, frankly. Um, for the diplomatic foreign service at the State Department. So I think it, you know, I'd look to the private sector. On this issue about going to conflict areas, I mean, I do think this is partly the difference between recruiting for a diplomatic kind of career and uh, recruiting for a development, humanitarian, post-conflict kind of career. I think you're actually looking at different people with different, different types of people, I should say. There's some overlap, but there are, it's a different pool of candidates um, with different interests and uh, risk, you know, sort of willingness to live in country and community um, under real hardship conditions. And um, it is a different reward system. Uh, you probably uh, do need to build your reserve capabilities. That has got to be part of the answer. Uh, with people that do this in their private lives anyway, outside of government, who are willing to redeploy at moments uh, when you need to expand that capacity. That's why I think it has to be part of the answer. But I think at the end of the day, that's why we're probably not talking about one set, one personnel pool, one set of career um, uh, incentives, one set of uh, skilled um, kind of uh, backgrounds that we're recruiting for. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lael, we've, I think we've gotten to the end of our time here. And I want, on behalf of everyone here, I want to thank you so much thank for coming you. and sharing all of this rich discussion with us. So thank you so much. Thank you.